Welcome to Great American Shit Show. I'm your host, Stephen Vargas. This is where we take a look at the political culture war cancel culture of a society that has lost the concept of irony and nuance. Growing up, many believed when humanity hit the year 2000, life would transcend our normal petty differences and somehow morph into a higher branch of being. Well, that wasn't the case. Many people signal 2000 as the year our reality shifted into an alternate timeline, when society reveals its ugly head back on a rationale we thought had long been corrected. On election day in the year 2000, an election that held little interest for people, no one knew just how radical the GOP would grow when trying to get their nominee, George W. Bush, into the White House. When his help from, with his help from evangelicals, the NRA, and other right-wing groups, Bush managed a virtual tie with then-Vice President Al Gore, who managed roughly 530,000 more votes than Bush. That translated into a half a percentage point of the national tally. However, the Electoral College and the next president of the United States hinged on Florida, a state where Bush was only in the lead by 1,784 votes. That night, news networks had been calling presidential elections before polls even closed in the West. It ran into a bit of an issue. This is the reason news organizations now wait until the polls close to project the winners. Prior to this, voter turnout was consistently low since at 6 p.m. on the West Coast, major outlets and cable news would let the country know who would be the next president of the United States. And this would hamper voter turnout on the West Coast as well as Alaska and Hawaii. And shortly before the polls closed, major news networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, would call the state of Florida, as well as ones that haven't closed yet, for Bush. No. Wait, Gore. No, it was Bush. Actually, it might be Gore. And after one in the morning on the East, all news networks retracted their projections and labeled the state too close to call. Al Gore was on his way to concede to his supporters after already conceding the race to Bush by phone. Now, some staffers realized that something was going on in Florida and he was held back just before he took the stage, to say that he was still had a chance to win this thing. The numbers were changing, and through the press, Gore took back his concessions from Bush, to which Bush angrily replied that Jeb, his brother and then governor of Florida, assured him the state was going to be his. Now, due to the closeness in the votes, recounts automatically happened. This would cause the declaration of the 2000 presidential election winner to be delayed and delayed for some time. Two weeks into the post-election recount, Miami-Dade County began recounting 10,750 votes. Republicans rallied around their man, declaring that Democrats were using this recount to make sure that Gore won the election. Representative Lincoln Diaz-Balart, a Florida Republican, claimed that the presidential election was stolen. Cuban-Americans who supported Bush equated recounts to a political coup. Other presidential candidate, Pat Buchanan, claimed that he didn't believe his total vote count. 
He started speaking to the press, believing that people didn't mean to vote for him and were confused by the style of butterfly ballot, meaning that many of his votes were originally intended to go to Bush. People started showing up at the Miami-Dade downtown government center where the recount was being held. Media accounts claimed average voters were turning out to protest the recount and claimed George W. Bush was the new president. People were chanting, Stop the recount! For nearly a month, this went on. Until December 12, 2000, the Supreme Court's five justices deemed that the recount needed to be halted in Miami-Dade and the original tally be reinstated. The Supreme Court of the United States decided that George W. Bush had become the next president of the United States. Many TV pundits and political observers were amazed at the grassroots movement of average voters that came out to protest the vote. There was just one problem. This wasn't a grassroots movement. It was a movement done by political operatives. Brad Blakeman, a Bush campaign operative, was dispatched to Miami-Dade to combat Democratic efforts demanding recounts. He was running messaging operations claiming these recounts was a Democratic plot to overturn the election. In later interviews, Blakeman himself said that all seasoned operatives were deployed to disrupt the recount. And these protesters were asked by reporters who they were. They lied. A woman claimed to be a Virginian on vacation in Miami was actually an aide to a New Mexico congresswoman. Staffers for Majority Whip Tom DeLay and Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott were part of the protesters. A reporter overheard a protester saying they were in touch with Carl Rove. Years later, feeling the need for attention, Roger Stone claimed to be responsible for what became known as the Brooks Brothers Riot, but Blankman said Stone was full of shit and had nothing to do with it. And this wasn't the first and only time that the GOP operatives managed to get paid political operatives to start what was appeared to look like a natural groundswell of real people. This wasn't the first and definitely wouldn't be the last. It was the spring of 1993. And if you were a Republican in Washington, D.C., you had a tough time finding a job. Jeff Nesbitt, author of Poison Tea, How Big Oil and Big Tobacco Invented the Tea Party and Captured the GOP, had worked as communications director for now former Vice President Dan Quayle. Bill Clinton had just been sworn in as president. Democrats held both chambers of Congress. And according to his book, quote, even undersecretaries of powerful cabinet departments from the Bush administration discovered they were unloved, unwanted, and unemployed in the nation's capital. Now, like many of his fellow unemployed Republicans, he turned to consulting. One of his first clients was a think tank that he never heard of called Citizens for a Sound Economy, CSE. Nesbitt asked where funding for this think tank was coming from, and it took him a while to get a straight answer. Eventually, he discovered that CSE was a wholly subsidiary of Coke Industries, the second largest privately owned company in the United States. The think tank was taken over by Rich Fink, a man that had been in the inner circles of the Koch brothers and known for movement building efforts for decades. An important side note that Charles and David's father, Fred, was a co-founding member of the notoriously racist and conspiratorial John Birch Society. Now, 
If you're a political observer, then you know who the Koch brothers are. If not, they are real people that Republicans like to project through the names like George Soros. Charles and David Koch's combined wealth could sell George Soros 10 times over. Their combined wealth could rival the gross domestic product of some small nations. So when you hear conservatives on Fox News, on their podcast, or from the House floor mention George Soros, it's a diversionary tactic to keep people from looking into their actual donors. Now, you're probably asking yourself, what does this have to do with the Tea Party? And why should I care? Well, here's why. Listening to it, I've been just glued to it because Mr. Ross has nailed it. You know, the, the government is promoting bad behavior because we certainly don't want to put stimulus forth and give people a whopping eight or ten dollars in their check and think that they ought to save it. And in terms of modifications, I'll tell you what, I have an idea. You know, the, the new administration's big on computers and technology. How about this, President and new administration? Why don't you put up a website to have people vote on the internet as a referendum to see if we really want to subsidize the losers' mortgages, or would we like to at least buy cars and buy houses in foreclosure and give them to people that might have a chance to actually prosper down the road and reward people that could carry the water instead of drink the water? Hey, Rick, That's it, a novel idea. Hey, hey Rick, did you... What? Who oh, thought of that? Yeah, they're, 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 like putting, they're like putty in your hands. Did you hear? No, they're not, Joe. They're not like putty in our hands. This is America. How many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills. Raise their hand. How about we all... Uh, President Obama, are you listening? How about we all stop paying our mortgage? It's a moral hazard. <laughs> this is like mob rule here. I'm getting scared. I'm glad I'm... I'm, glad I'm a... Don't get scared, get some Joe. They're already scaring you. You know, Cuba used to have mansions and, and a relatively decent economy. They moved from the individual to the collective. Now they're driving 54 Chevys. Maybe the last great car to come out of Detroit. They're, they're driving them on water, too, which is a little strange to watch. Uh, at, there at you time. go. Hey, Rick, how about the notion that Wilbur pointed out, you can go down to two percent on the mortgage. You can go down to minus two percent and still have forty percent, and still have forty percent, not be able to do it. So why are they in the house? Why are we trying to I keep mean, them I in the house? I know Mr. Summers is a great economist, but boy, I'd love the answer to that one. Jason, Jason, you want to? We're thinking of having a Chicago Tea Party in July. All you capitalists that want to show up to Lake Michigan, I'm going to start organizing. What are you jumping in? What are you jumping in this time? You may remember this speech from CNBC reporter Chris Santelli. He gave this speech about a having a Chicago-style Tea Party from the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. He threw this rant because then-newly-elected President Obama signed a new relief package for the banks in 2009. This ironic speech about claiming the bailout for banks isn't lost on me. This guy is ranting against relief for big businesses. But he would be out of a job if relief wouldn't be given to the businesses that he covers. So when... Legacy media discusses the origins of the Tea Party. This is the moment they hearken back to. The problem is that it isn't. Santelli didn't come up with this speech on the fly. In the book Poison Tea, Santelli was sent a talking points memo, which was to become his speech from political operatives to use in opposition to the signing of the bailout. Now, 
That isn't to say there wasn't a growing resentment towards government bailing out corporate America. And it's spending on two foreign wars and a white middle class that felt like they were being forgotten. The Tea Party isn't what it started out to be. Have you slept? I got up at 2 a.m. and broke down polling data from the Republican Senate primary race in Utah. Back in 1968, when Rennie Davis and Hayden and their guys organized the SDS, it was specifically to end the Vietnam War. But that movement got eaten by Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and the Yippies. Hoffman and Rubin were a lot more charismatic. Yeah, but it was impossible to define what the Yippies were protesting. They were about giving the finger to anyone over 30, generically hating the American establishment, dropping out, and getting high. And? That's how the progressive movement would be painted for the next 40 years, people passing out daisies to soldiers and trying to levitate the Pentagon. The Tea Party in the beginning, just like I understood the STS, the Tea Party was a middle-class movement responding spontaneously to bad trends. Wages were stagnant, jobs were disappearing, Wall Street got trillions, and everybody was laughing at them. But they've been co-opted by the radical right, which in turn has enslaved the Republican middle. During the end of the Bush administration, many conservative activists were... Well, to a smaller extent, protesting Bush's compassionate conservative ideology. He had cozied up to big business, much like his party in Congress, spent a lot of money in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as his massive tax cuts for big businesses. Nisbet, in his book, recounts one of his first assignments with CSE was a meeting with Philip Morris, the tobacco company who was going to train them on how the Coke oil money-backed CSE could build political muscle and grow beyond their tobacco and oil interests. CSE met with several state-based government affairs experts who had experience in blocking any regulation they hated on a state level. An quote-unquote unholy alliance was formed. Philip Morris's money mixed with the Coke money could create anti-tax front groups that would assemble on any tax initiative that was announced. It didn't make a difference what kind of tax it was. These big money donors would fund these front groups and the front groups would recruit average citizens, but they would be partnered with corporate direct workers and employees. Using direct to mail, they would let the average citizen notice some new tax was coming along and what American likes new taxes. Their effort managed to draw the interest of R.J. Reynolds, the second biggest tobacco company, into CSE. And with their money and Coke's CSE mobilization network, they were able to create state-based anti-tax and anti-regulation propaganda campaigns such as Get Government Off Our Back, Enough is Enough, and Citizens Against Regressive Taxation. Rich Fink would later say they occasionally talked publicly about what would be needed is to take over one of the two major political parties. And how would they do this? It would have to be taken over from the outside and replace it with libertarian free market principles. But they knew they couldn't do it in a few states. They needed to grow nationally. According to publicly available IRS records, the five essential pillars of the Tea Party movement was funded and in place by the spring of 2009 the Sam Adams Alliance to direct grassroots efforts, the Franklin Center for Government and Public Integrity to coordinate funding and free market policies at state-based think tanks, hundreds of grants from Koch foundations to American universities that were lined in through SPN, State Policy Network, and of course CSE's successor, Americans for Prosperity, 
built to coordinate the effort nationally. All these organizations saw their budgets expand significantly as Obama ran for the White House and then took office, months to even a full year before the Tea Party's movement appears in 2009. That is why this movement was able to mobilize, spread, and network so rapidly as if by magic. I was reading today a copy of the New York Times. And I was really interested to read in there about Barack Obama's friends from Chicago. Turns out one of his earliest supporters is a man who, according to the New York Times, was a domestic terrorist and part of a group part of a group that quote launched a campaign of bombings that would target the Pentagon and the US Capitol man these are the same guys who think patriotism is paying higher taxes remember that's what Joe Biden said now this is not a man who sees America as you and I see America. We see America as a force for good in this world. We see an America of exceptionalism. Yes, USA, USA. The only bright point for conservatives that came out of the 2008 presidential election was Sarah Palin. Many Democrats and mainstream conservatives considered Palin a joke when she was selected for the VP spot with John McCain. Yet she tapped into something when she would draw thousands of people to her rallies. A governor from Alaska, she was a joke among anyone with a mid-intellect and a GED, she rebuffed the mainstream media and was sent out as an attack dog for the McCain campaign. There were things the big name on the ticket wouldn't do. John McCain had a distaste for the evangelical crowd that he needed for his run. Plus, he had trouble rallying the base. Palin didn't. She had no problem charming the pants off of the evangelical crowd that their campaign needed. Nor did she have a problem race-baiting Barack Obama, when the campaign needed someone to bring up ugly things back from the 2008 racist bin from Obama's nomination run, she would mention them in her campaign rallies. She would attack Obama calling him a secret Muslim, that he wasn't actually an American, and that he was working for terrorists to destroy America from the inside. Something about her attack stuck with the GOP base. Sure, the internet was fueled with such baseless attacks, but many presidential candidates would attempt to steer clear of such unfounded attacks. Palin wouldn't. While the ticket ultimately lost, there was something about that sort of attack that GOP faithful would latch onto. Feeding onto the birther conspiracy, congressional representatives and state houses would attempt to propose bills that would require presidential candidates to disclose their birth certificate. A poll taken in July of 2009, only 42% of Republicans believed that Obama was, a bo was born in America. 28% believed he wasn't, 
while 30% were unsure. If Rush Limbaugh was the drive-time bigot for the 80s and 90s, Fox News host Glenn Beck was the one for the digital age. Joining Fox News in 2009, he told his audience to forget about Obama's citizenship. People using that argument were being marginalized. Being a birther made you look like a flat earther. Beck was a ratings hit for Fox, to which author Stephen King called him Satan's mentally challenged younger brother. Glenn Beck was a huge Tea Party supporter and their mouthpiece. The group started not just targeting minorities for what they viewed as being favorited over white Christians, not to mention having a non-white president for the first time in history, but they started taking aim at not only at Democrats, but at conservatives with liberal leanings as well as liberals with conservative leanings, even against establishment Republicans who did things they didn't like. Political scientists Christopher Parker and Matt Barreto explains, quote, People are driven to support the Tea Party from the anxiety they feel they perceive the America they know, the country they love, slipping away, threatened by a rapidly changing face of what they perceived as the real America, a heterosexual, Christian, mostly white, male, white country. The Republican establishment didn't know what was happening around them. Many didn't realize it until it was too late. Six-term South Carolinian Representative Bob Inglis discovered in a campaign stop in his district. He never realized just how far the Limbaugh, Beck, and Palin rhetoric was sinking in. A man rated at a 93% from the American Conservative Union was being challenged by a Tea Party candidate. His donors weren't giving him money and people were questioning him as to why he didn't call Obama a socialist. Because he didn't believe he was. He recalled a meeting with a dozen Tea Party activists. I sat down, he recalled, and they said, on the back of your social security card, there's a number. That number indicates the, ba the bank that bought you when you were born based on a projection of your life's earnings. And you are collateral. We are all collateral for the banks. I have this look like, what the heck are you talking about? And I'm trying to hide that look and look clueless. I figured clueless was better than argumentative. So they said, you don't know this? You're a member of these things. And then, of course, it turned into something about the Federal Reserve and the Bilderbergers and all this stuff. And now you have that the feeling of anti-Semitism coming in, mixing in. Inglis would lose his race to Tea Party candidate Trey Gowdy, 71 to 29. It wasn't, he wasn't the only one. Utah Senator Bob Bennett lost his race to a lawyer named Mike Lee. Why? Well, because he wouldn't call Obama socialist and voted in support of the TARP bailouts. Rand Paul beat out a moderate Republican. Not only being known as a, the son of Ron Paul, he was known, a known conspiracy theorist and a frequent guest on the Alex Jones show, Infowars. In Nevada, Sharon Engel, a Tea Party-backed candidate, called for abolishing Social Security and hated black football uniforms because they suggested satanic influences. Beat the state's former chair for Senate. Many moderate Republicans were claiming that the kooky right, Beck, Limbaugh, and others, were hijacking their party. Many other establishment Republicans in Congress now came through the Tea Party wave. Marco Rubio defeated Charlie Crist, 
Rick Scott, who was fined for defrauding Medicare, won during the election. In, in October, the New York Times identified 129 House candidates and nine Senate contenders affiliated with the Tea Party, and each one Republican. The GOP saw this as a major win for them. John Boehner saw this as a major win, since he would become House Majority Leader. He went all in with the Tea Party. Some expressed concern over their bombastic traits, but Boehner thought he could keep them in line. And in an effort to meet his desires, he and Representative Kevin McCarthy drew up a Pledge to America. It stated that they would accomplish in their first term a repeal of Obamacare, halt all tax increases, cut federal spending by $100 billion. It was a redesign of Gingrich's contract with America from the 90s. And Boehner got his wish. He became Speaker of the House, but it was not an easy road. Boehner found himself at odds with his own party in regards to the debt ceiling, which is not about borrowing more money as Republicans, Republicans often promote. Raising the debt ceiling means allocating money to pay off debts we already have. Well, well, frankly, I think they're misleading uh, uh, their followers. I think they're uh, pushing our members in places where they don't want to be. And frankly, I just uh, think that uh, uh, they've lost all credibility. You know, well, they, they pushed us into this fight uh, to defund Obamacare and to shut down the government. Uh, most of you know, my members know, that wasn't exactly the strategy that I had in mind. Uh, but uh, if you recall, the day before the government reopened, uh, one of the people at one of these groups stood up and said, well, we never really thought it would work. Are you kidding me? Listen, uh, you all know me, all right? Uh, I say what I mean, I mean what I say. Uh, I'm as conservative as anybody around this place. And uh, uh, all the things that we've done uh, over the three years that I've been Speaker uh, have not violate, violated any conservative principle, not once. Are you asking these groups to effectively stand down? I don't care what they do. Boehner found himself unable to control his own caucus. Through all the threats of shutting down the government and not raising the debt ceiling, the credit score of the United States was downgraded, which would increase the cost of borrowing. The Kochs and other interest groups got what they wanted. Dysfunction. With Congress unable to pass any real legislation, this group of bomb throwers would never pass anything that would be considered substantive. Anything that would include a tax increase, increased regulation against businesses, and allowing the elites to retain their power. This would stymie any real reg legislation that Obama and any other president afterwards hoped to implement. In the next four years, how did the Tea Party do with their pledge to America? Not well. Obamacare was never repealed. The stimulus and bailouts were never undone. $100 billion were not cut from the year's budget. And the federal government remained fully intact. And as we got to 2016, the Tea Party virtually melted away. Many of those candidates are still in office and considered part of the establishment. Rubio and Cruz tried to run for president and lost. But there was a dark force. Worse than the Tea Party, waiting in the wings. Kooks and conspiracy theorists that hinged on every word from a disgraced businessman from New York. After the debt ceiling debacle, Mike Lofgren, a veteran Republican congressional staffer, wrote, To be sure, 
Like any political party on earth, the GOP has always had its share of crackpots. But the crackpot outliers of two decades ago have become the vital core today. That isn't even the half of it. Just wait for the MAGA crowd. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what I'm doing here, you have two ways to help out. One, you can make a one-time donation to make this show self-sustaining through either PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. Check the show notes for details and links. Or two, you can share us on social media or review us on Apple Podcasts. This will make the algorithm gods promote our show to an unsuspecting public. You can also stalk me on Facebook, facebook.com slash thegenxer12, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at thegen underscore xer. If you're old school, email me, thegenxer73 at gmail.com. If you want to read some news, blogs, or check out my content for my other podcasts, check out the blog at generationannoyed.wordpress.com. So that is it for me this week. So until next time, if your society has lost the art of irony and nuance, then you need to thank The Great American Shit Show.